Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Brian Singer, Head of Dynamic Allocation Strategies at William Blair. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Very well. I thought today we'd start the conversation with the backdrop of where we are in markets today. How do we get to a situation where markets are you know, so fragile that we, we need to continually provide stimulus to keep things going? Yes, I don't believe that, you know, anybody planned on being here. And I don't think policymakers, in particular central banks, actually ever thought they would be in the position they're in or ever even dreamed of putting themselves in this position, which is largely what's happened. They put themselves in this position, but they've done it over a period of decades and they've done it increment at a time, little salami slice at a time till suddenly it was all gone. And they acted in markets to try to socialize risk and personalize or privatize gain. And in doing so, investors have come to understand that that's a backstop for them. That leads them to allocate resources in a poor manner. If they allocate resources in a way that they wouldn't otherwise allocate resources. And now we end up in a situation where there's a lot of investment that's occurred that really wouldn't have occurred absent that behavior from policymakers. And now so much time has passed that the policymakers need to throw more at it every time that the, the market goes down. They try to support asset prices. And that's the nature of fragility. You ultimately reach a point where the market is kind of at this critical state. And when that happens, you'll start to see events. Many of them will be very small, but some of them will be very large. And there'll be a few that are just really extreme. And whatever the catalyst is, doesn't matter. It can be any number of things, but it's the environment that exists at any point in time that allow those catalysts to make the situation really compound and make it worse than it would otherwise be. And I think that's where we are today. It's a, in, a, it's in a sense a grave that we dug for ourselves or policymakers dug for themselves. And unfortunately, we're the ones who have to live in the cemetery with them. <laughs> Look, it feels like some sort of a, a type of confidence game. You know, everyone's just got to sort of believe and they look at each other, you know, their eyes sort of swinging around the room, making sure, okay, who are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? Um, is that a, is that an appropriate way to describe what, where we're at? Yeah, it's interesting in terms of a confidence game. I'd have to, uh, I'd have to think about that a little bit. It definitely is a, a trust game, which is, we might take it to a confidence game and, and it, as a trust game, we've got an environment where investors trust that central banks have their back. And now fiscal policy too has their, has their back. And they act kind of with that trust embedded in their decision-making. And now it's the case that central banks have to maintain that trust. And it makes it more costly for them not to. And it requires, almost compels them to be involved in markets. And, and in the beginning, it wasn't as obvious, but now they call it a portfolio balance effect. And, and it's quite clear that they are boosting asset prices or have been boosting at risky asset prices um, to change behavior in the economy and try to keep things going. And once you've started down that path, and you've, you've gone from an environment where inflation or employment, whatever central bank you're looking at is the driving force, and suddenly asset prices become a major driving force in their policy-making decisions. And in that sense now, 
it is a bit of a cat and mouse game going on between markets and central banks and public policymakers on a broader level. You can't afford not to be involved in markets, even though they're not reflecting the type of fundamentals that investors are accustomed to and should only be accustomed to working with. Now you've got this separate force that I would say is non-market or it's it's shoving itself into a market uh, such that it doesn't work the way it normally does. And when it doesn't work the way it normally does, you have to, as an investor, begin to guess kind of how will it work now that these policymakers are playing big and heavy in, in, in the capital markets that we deal with. That, that is a, maybe a confidence game in the end. It's definitely a cat and mouse game and, and it'll keep going till I believe investors begin to lose trust that they actually have the ability, that public policymakers actually have the ability uh, to be the backstop that they've convinced us over time that they are. And sooner or later, that'll go away. We don't really know of many instances where this has turned out well uh, with central banks and public, public policymakers uh, so influential in, in resource allocation and in capital markets. So how did we get to a situation where asset prices seem to be the economy? It seems to be what we're managing. Um, I, you know, I, w- I wonder, you know, with, with a situation where the, the average person um, around the world doesn't hold, hold shares or doesn't hold them directly, but it seems that, that uh, we're managing to, to an asset price uh, level. You know, that's, that's where the focus of central banks has, has become. Yeah, they've got central banks have a lot of, of um, a lot of objectives that they ultimately have to work with. Yes, they do focus on inflation and a monetary regime that tends to be, you know, from the early 90s, that's really what became uh, the overarching driving force uh, for a lot of central banks. And um, as as time has passed, that that activity has kind of shifted out of their control. And one of the things that that is, I think, difficult is a lot of them are kind of structured around a monetarist theory of, of inflation. Inflation is anywhere and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Um, and in reality, it, 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 that may be true. But the question is, who creates the money? Um, central banks can create reserves and currency and cir- circulation, but in the end, the actual money supply is a function of banks, private banks' willingness willingness to provide credit. And if they don't, then we've got central banks losing control of that mechanism. And that's the environment that, that we're kind of seeing these central banks, I guess, try to figure out in some sense, uh, because the response function of the markets is different way, from what it used to be. And in that response function, fundamentals are still out there and they're still important, but they're just held at bay or their influence is there, but it's so hard to see the signal of fundamental values influence among the noise of the market's attempt to understand what's happening in in central banks around the world and in treasuries around the world. Let's face it, if you look at the dot plots in, in the US with the Federal Reserve, they can't even figure out where rates are going. If they can't figure out where rates are going and they're the ones who are trying to push them there, it's pretty hard for the rest of us to be uh, uh, right on top of these things and figure it out before they do. Um, so it's really a, an unstable environment that, that we have here. And I don't think it's going to go away. We've got a long period of low volatility. And I, I think a lot of people might uh, a few years from now be look, looking back at that very fondly and wishing we were still there. Let, let's just go back to one of the, the issues around fundamentals, right? We, when, we, when we go to university and when we do the CFA program, there's this whole premise around rational you know, analysis, rational behavior of people, efficient markets, you know, that's what we, we're taught as this great way that, that systems clear and so forth. But it feels like we've got to this situation where we've totally removed ourselves from fundamental value and we've gone to instinctive behavior where prices don't seem to matter. 
valuations, you know, are sort of on the second ground. People don't even really care. And there's this price insensitive buying, you know, is that to do with the central bank, you know, their, their constant influence, or is there other market narratives that are being put out there in the, that, that are driving this, you know, this wave of, of excitement, exuberance around parts of the market? You know, how, how do we, how did we get to a point where we thought markets, you know, played a very important role in, in capital um, allocation to the point where who cares? Uh, you just got to be in it to win it. Right, right. It, it, that's an interesting kind of uh, perspective to take on things. And yes, the the CFA Institute uh, in providing uh, or, or allowing individuals to earn their charters teaches a good bit about fundamental analysis. And that's really pretty much the cornerstone of, of what the CFA uh, would learn that this in, in studying for the exams, that's what you would learn. And you also learn that in, investors are roughly rational and they do respond to information in the, in the, you know, strong form, weak form, pharma type of, of, of just, but, but people don't, typically engage in the market with an attempt to be irrational. Um, and they've learned the fundamentals and the fundamentals aren't working. It is rational in that environment to move to something else that actually does work. And in particular, in moving to something else, what often becomes the case, and you use the word instinctive, People often then react to things in a more instinctive way than in a thoughtful way. But I wouldn't call that not rational. It's rational in the skewed incentive structure that has been created for them to survive in. And are markets efficient? No, they're not efficient now because they're not really free markets anymore. They're markets that are heavily influenced by fiscal policies and monetary policies in countries all around the world. They're the 800 pound gorillas, these policymakers, and they're having a huge impact on pricing. And it's fine to say, I'm a fundamental investor and I am a fundamental investor. And it's fine to say that I think value is above or below where, where price is. And sooner or later, let's face it, when investors make decisions, the only good decisions are those that are actually worth being made, where somebody is paying what something is worth. Something is paying its value ultimately. And price might deviate that for a period of time, but now these decisions are not being made as much on fundamental value. So that all of what we've learned is still there, but there's a layer that we have to kind of machete our way through to blaze a trail to try to find out where those fundamental values are amidst the behavior of, of these policymakers. And in some sense, we all sit around and it's kind of like the, the Keynesian beauty contest. We're trying to figure out what the other person is thinking rather than thinking what we're thinking. Because the other person's instinctive move, once it becomes a herd, is really also a powerful force and often done in response to what central banks do or what uh, pol uh, fiscal policy uh, uh, drivers actually have in terms of their influence on, on the market. So I think the fundamentals are still out there. And ultimately, resources are allocated in a rational way such that the economy grows over time on a global basis. It's been right around 3.5% real growth. Um, over the, the past many, many decades. Maybe it'll be lower than that because of demographics as we go forward, but they're still making these decisions. They've always made these decisions. They've always allocated resources, sometimes right, sometimes wrong. But now they have to, in some sense, actually allocate or misallocate in the short and intermediate term, in some sense, trying to make sure that they can survive and prosper until they can actually act in a way that is probably much better for society than what they're forced to do now. You, you raise an interesting uh, point there at the end around prospering in, in this environment, 
because I think one of the biggest challenges that inv- challenges that investors have is, you know, they're they're usually peer aware. They've got benchmarks they've got to beat, and so they may have this you know this series of of wisdom that they've built up over years. You know, from from you know their their teachings at university or the CFA Institute, but their wisdom or their their set of knowledge is being changed. You know, the the thinking that they've been told this is how you know you need to invest and how to sort of stay the course and and come back to val- fundamental valuations. That's sort of getting pulled. You know, it's getting picked at. Because you know they're investing, they're finding that uh, you know their performance is is doing poorly. You know, particularly a lot of these value style um, investment strategies. So they see that and they keep saying, "Well, I keep losing. I keep losing in this. And maybe I need to change my my thinking." You know, how do we then, you know, tell people either to stay the course or maybe that there's been this paradigm shift in markets and you, you know your thinking now needs to evolve. You used an interesting term there as you were asking, and that term was wisdom. And there's, I wish I could recall who it was that that um, gave this to me, or, or I heard it, um, but it was referred to as a wisdom hierarchy. And that wisdom hierarchy involves data first, information second, knowledge third, and then ultimately wisdom. So what are all of those things? Data are just a little anecdotes ultimately we can call them facts if we want um and then when we understand the ones that are important uh because they help us in creating a model of the world they help us understand things and we look at it and we say well um you know the price of beans in china is probably not that important for whether or not i build a house on this neighborhood or that neighborhood uh, but there are things that are important, and that's the information. And then ultimately, when you pull of all those things together and you uh, bring them together based on their correlations, uh, and in some instances, even lucky enough to be causations, um, that we'd call knowledge. And the knowledge is basically saying, this model of the world helps me make good decisions. For example, a fundamental value-based model of the world helps me make good investment decisions. But there are other models that can be employed as well to make good investment decisions. And ultimately, wisdom in this hierarchy is the experience that allows investors to choose which models are appropriate at any point in time. And I really like that. I thought that was a good way to think about what we do and what people's roles are in in what we do. And... The difficulty is, is as we get older, we have in some sense less knowledge. Our knowledge is getting older, um, more stale, but we have more wisdom uh, because we've had experience applying different models. And, And because of that, we're able to apply these different models. And often I find that uh, there's this interesting commingling that needs to occur between the young and the old in in our industry. I want the young to come in with knowledge, fresh knowledge, uh, without responsibilities, and they can can innovate, they can take risks, they think differently, and and because of that, they see things in ways that, that people who've been around the industry forever can't see. Then the older ones have this wisdom to take what the younger ones do have this knowledge and actually take their models and take their understanding and apply it to the markets. What's different now is nobody really has any experience in this. I mean, our experience ultimately is is being slowly gathered over the years, um, but it just seems to be coming more and more extreme. And and because it's becoming more and more extreme, the models become a little different each each time. And and there's this need to integrate the think thought processes of the young and the old, but many young have never seen anything bad. This is the first thing they've ever seen. They haven't gone through you know, October of 87. They, they have not uh, gone through the oil price shocks. They didn't go through the tech bubble and bursting. And a lot of them didn't even go through the financial crisis. So they don't know that there's a whole set of models that help them survive. <laughs> as opposed to just thrive. And it's easy to think about thriving when someone's socializing the risk that you take. 
but there will come a point in time where wisdom will actually be incredibly valuable because there will be a need to draw upon those models that allow investors to survive. And, and those we really haven't seen applied until very recently uh, when society was disrupted by this virus. But that's really the first for a lot of people. And it's an interesting balance as to how you combine those two things. And often you want to, you find, and this is what we find in the marketplace, a lot of times models are not deductive in nature. Um, they're inductive in nature. They're, they're, they're milked from the data. Uh, they're empirical. And that's fine. Something can be very successful doing that. But you can also find things that are ephemeral in the sense that they're only valuable to the degree that policymakers are engaged in the way that they are engaged now or were engaged before or are likely to be engaged in the future. And, and those will work, but then there's the point where somebody with wisdom has to sit back and say, well, maybe that's not the right model to apply now. Maybe now the environment is changing such that we need to be thinking about models that focus on survival and our resource allocation. It's, a, it's an interesting balance, and there's no right or wrong answer to it. It's really just how do you pull all of this together in the decision-making process, in the team that you have, and how do you leverage all the different perspectives of both knowledge and wisdom to be successful? It's interesting, you know, you, you ended off with the word being successful. I guess, you know, the way the way success is often measured in, in uh, fi- you know, financial terms and, and for a lot of investors is around, you know, performance. You know, it's, it's a percentage number as, you know, in terms of how much can you grow as opposed to capital preservation. It seems that we've, we've had that disconnect. And so I wanted to ask you that question with a situation where we do seem to have uh, an altered risk environment. You know, there, there's, this, there's this premise that, Volatility is, is actually quite low, um, and so you know, returns are are also stretched. So you need to sort of take additional risk to get higher returns. But there's no seems to be thinking about that that left tail. You know what happens when things go bad. Um, so how do you have this situation where performance is on one hand the only piece, and, and that's all that people sort of bias their mindset so they blinker themselves to that part, but then they're totally cutting off that that left tail. Yes, it, the, um, sometimes being successful is surviving, but not often. Um, often being successful does mean winning the game, playing offense rather than playing defense. And people lose fear when volatility is low. People lose fear when they think somebody's protecting risk for them. And they can focus on the return aspect of performance, which is the one that that people respond to in the short run. And the key to this is how do you figure out the appropriate time horizon to think about investment decisions? Unfortunately, our industry for various agency reasons uh, and otherwise, is really focused on an inordinately short period of time and an unrealistically short period of time in terms of actually managing both the success of good performance and the success of navigating big fat left tails. And those ultimately both have to occur. You can, invest in a risk of ruin strategy and win month after month after month. But it doesn't matter which month you get a down 100%, it's all gone. You can have made 10 billion percent before you lose 100%. But once you lose 100%, it's all gone. And that leads to interesting behaviors. Uh, a lot of times, and people don't even realize it, that, that, that this is often happening, they'll invest a portfolio and they'll create concave structures. What does that mean? Um, think of credit as a concave structure. It, it pays off most of the time, uh, but occasionally there's a default. Um, that's kind of a risk of ruin type of, of strategy. That's that tail that's hanging out there. 
and investors gravitate to more and more exposures like that. And they can come from many different sources. They can come from uh, investing in illiquid assets. Momentum is is a, uh, I mean, uh, uh, value is more of, a, I'm sorry, not momentum, value is more of a, a concave strategy. These are the things that tend to pay off uh, in little bits and pieces over time, but they have tails associated with them. And that performance is rewarded because horizons are short. And when horizons are short, it incentivizes investors to think about picking up nickels and not paying attention to the steamroller. Um, however, these things are like a pendulum. They swing back and forth. And investors do this in periods of calm. And then the steamroller rolls over them in periods of crisis and behaviors change. What we've observed over the past four decades are these are basically waves of monetary policy, big waves, not week to week rate changes and things like that, but big waves of monetary policy that last years. And, and when there's stimulative monetary policy, you tend to find a couple things. One is risky asset returns are relatively high. Uh, and that makes sense. You know, as I mentioned there, call it a portfolio balance effect. Um, they also tend to dampen volatility. And that also makes sense because they're actively engaged in markets. And act, being actively engaged in markets and influencing prices, they do have the effect of dampening that volatility or, as we've observed almost explicitly, socializing downside risk and taking that away from investors in the marketplace at, at any point in time. And it's that, I think, um, process ultimately that that is occurring that leads to these periods that are, are rough patches. Uh, and that's when the easy monetary, the stimulative monetary policies stop, kind of like snow on a mountain. The snow keeps falling. It's, it's very calm. It's very serene. And it becomes this kind of soft, curvy surfaces. And after a while, the little bunny prints and things like that. Everything's just perfect up until the avalanche occurs. And that's much the way markets work. Um, and, and not always, but they, they get themselves in these environments where they're susceptible to, to an avalanche. And let's face it, if there's no snow on the mountain, there's not going to be an avalanche. But once there's a lot of snow on the mountain, there could be. What's going to cause it? The next snowflake? A little earthquake? Who knows? Uh, but you end up in an environment where, where that can happen. And, and that's what we've observed over the decades. And that means ultimately, as you and I have been talking, that central banks have a greater and greater onus uh, once they put that snow, snow up on the top of the mountain to keep it there. It's kind of like their behavior is if you think about uh, a lot of times in the winter, it snows in the hills and every mountains and you put up these little fences to hold the snow back. And that's kind of what central banks seem to be doing. They're like holding the snow back and it piles up more and more behind those little fences. And all, in the end, all that happens is the avalanche is bigger when it ultimately occurs. Now they're able to dodge a lot of avalanches but in dodging them, they make it bigger. So what have we had since the Greenspan put? Dodging. We've been dodging the risk. We've been putting up fences. Public policy has been all about putting up fences, regulations to make things not happen anymore, central bank policies to make risks not happen anymore. And these fences keep coming up and it simply exposes the market to greater fragility and ultimately turbulent times. And, and that's where I think we're, we're moving now. Uh, and I think we're pretty close to that. We're already in it. Um, we're seeing the initial cracks of it. We saw that the repo market uh, issues have, have kind of clearly been indicating it. But uh, you know, the, this virus COVID-19 is mostly just revealed or mostly just been a, a spark uh, behind the market moves that we've had. and the, the, it's been that way. It's been built uh, to be this 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 way for a long period of time. 
Let's let's take it more back to to the portfolio setting, right? For an investor, as they think about their portfolio, we've all heard about the sixty forty portfolio. We've heard of SAA, you know, that the funds need to to build. You know, are, are these types of uh, strategies in terms of setting up a portfolio that was historically done still relevant given the backdrop where we seem to have, you know, a centrally planned world? We've got this constant backstop. You know, do, do those structures still make sense? You know, SAA, when we talk about SAAs as this long-term approach to, to building asset allocation, you know, from what from what you're discussing, that there's there's all these constant flare-ups, you know, how do you make sure that that correlates with what we're actually seeing in markets today? I think the, the strategic asset allocation or the SAA is, is very, very important um, and it can be put in place. The difficulty is that nobody acts as if that's really what is important. Um, there's a lot of uh, knee-jerk, short-term decision-making um, that occurs that kind of prevents that from happening. However, the decisions that need to be made or the decisions that have always needed to be made and they will continue to need to be made. And, and now the, in terms of a portfolio, how do we navigate the path to get to that SAA outcome that we want? You know, back in the, the, you know, the last century after modern portfolio theory came on board, let's face it, modern portfolio theory was a single period framework. And there wasn't a lot of thought given to path dependencies. And now what we're learning is that people, maybe sparked by the global financial crisis and now by this, people uh, are concerned about path. Path matters. And, and the SAA is still important, but I would believe, I believe that, that in setting up a policy, for a portfolio, these days you have to actually consider path as well. Um, the the ability to realize that long-term outcome has become more difficult because there's a desire to navigate path, but there's not a lot of direction that investors set for themselves about navigating path. So we can all sit back and say there's a problem with short-termism, and we want investors to think long-term and allocate resources long-term. And we've known that for decades and we haven't gotten anywhere with that. And I suspect that we can continue to beat that drum, but 50 years from now, we'll find exactly the same thing that we find right now. And an alternative approach to that is not to just say, well, people need to invest for the long-term. Well, they do, um, but, the reality is they invest for the long term with a management of the path that gets them there. And these policy statements should probably include, before the fact, language about acceptable and unacceptable paths, not just the SAA as a static concept over a period of time. So I think it's still important. I think it needs to be augmented uh, by this path type of consideration. So going back to the 60-40 portfolio that, you know, we've always seemed to use as, the, as, the, as that sort of standard, um, you know, how, how do you think about that role it historically is there? You know, is, is that dead in terms of that balanced portfolio when we think about the return and risk characteristics that would make up that portfolio in the current uh, environment? No, I, I think it's still important. You know, whether it's 60-40 or 40-60, I think there is – um, an objective out there in terms of return and risk that's appropriate for the, for the long term. And I think there's, uh, there's an appropriate combination of assets, liquid and illiquid, that investors use to realize that uh, return and risk around the 60-40 uh, that they actually desire. <clears throat> in, in, in the interim, in terms of making investment decisions, now the, the investment decisions involve a, a lot of different things. So, for example, we can look at fixed income and say, well, fixed income is uh, not a good return generator with yields around zero. Um, that's not going to be great for savers or investors. At the same time, it's probably not appropriate to 
be zero in terms of allocation to those because pathwise, it may be the case that they don't go up for a long period of time, or maybe yields even go lower from 60 basis points in the US on the 10 year down to 10 basis points. Or in Italy, where we're up one and a half, two percent, which is astoundingly low, down even lower. The spread to, to German bonds goes even lower. And the decisions that are made in a portfolio context on a day-to-day basis, yeah, they have that in mind. But in an environment where there's been such misallocation of, of resources, it needs to be allocated in a way that can navigate that misallocation as it unwinds, navigate central bank activities as they unwind. And, and we know that'll pull, probably push yields higher as inflation comes in. But at the same time, between now and then, as efforts are, are still strong to try to keep interest rates lower, it may not be the best idea to be short. So if you think about a portfolio today, you probably, you might have 60-40 as your starting point, but you may want to be further from that 40% bonds than, than you've been for a long period of time. Or you may look at it and say, yeah, I'd like to be for my long-term strategic allocation, but for now, it's too early to do that. Even though they're very, very expensive, I'm still going to hold them closer to 40% until I actually feel that the path is in front of me that I want to travel. So a lot of decisions that are made today are made with that in mind. For example, I don't invest in gold as an investor for my clients. I am a fundamental investor. I discount future cash flows to come up with value. And I can't determine what value is in that manner for, for gold. Now, that doesn't mean that gold prices don't go up and down and create opportunities for investors. They do. They go up and down and create opportunities for investors. But they also, gold also provides an interesting risk management uh, uh, augmentation to a portfolio as well. And where in the past, it maybe not have been that big of a deal for a, a strategic allocation or something along those lines. These days, I think it has a more, a more important role from a risk perspective, an inflation perspective, a, a disaster perspective. It's kind of that tail management vehicle in risk terms that's important. And um, earlier this year, uh, for the first time in my life, I actually bought gold for myself. <laughs> I, I, I'm not buying it for clients because it's not what I necessarily do. I can't value it. I'm a fundamental value investor. I don't want to be running around doing things that aren't fundamental value. But that's the type of thing in, in this environment that, that investors do need to be open to. And, and maybe even if it's not in their strategic uh, asset allocation. You, you raised some more interesting questions around what defensive assets are look like. You, you, you sort of gold is, is seen as one. You know, as you think about a portfolio and a lot of investors talk about robustness of their portfolio and having these uncorrelated assets, you know, but ultimately we keep we keep seeing when whenever there's a crisis, all these supposed and in some cases unlisted or illiquid assets that are seen to be, uh, you know, these defensive plays aren't so uncorrelated um, in, in the marketplace. So, how you know, how do we then – rethink or how should investors rethink what defensive assets should look like in this environment or is it need to be defensive strategies is, is that the way to think about it yeah, they, i mean i think there might be some interesting ground broken here you know the last half of the last century uh was pretty benign for all intents and purposes you know the cold war was geopolitically stable and and now we have instability uh it was a period of, of uh, demographic dividend um, and, and now we don't really have that anymore. So it was a good environment and to, to think about something as a 60-40. But these days, I think investors need to be a little bit um, more open-minded in, in the things they think about. So let's say inflation as a concern. Uh, yeah, tips, uh, inflation-linked securities around the world uh, can provide a, a hedge against inflation. Uh, so can cash. Um, cash provides an interesting hedge against inflation. But another one that's also important is non-domestic based currencies. Uh, they provide an unbelievably good hedge of unexpected inflation. Unexpected inflation. Because if you think about unexpected inflation, that tends to cause the currency to depreciate. And you're protected from that if you're not invested in your currency. So I mentioned cash as a part of a portfolio. 
it's rare. It's rare that strategic uh, allocations will have a large chunk of cash as part of the portfolio. Uh, but it may not be a bad idea um, to do so and have the cash, but have it in other currencies. Now, if the de entire domestic world is threat or uh, developed world is, is a threat from an inflation perspective, then the other currencies would be developing world currencies. And that's fine, but that's a little bit requires a, a different mindset than, than many investors are used to. So you can think of as a as a, uh, a risk management capability, an allocation for a portfolio, an additional allocation for, for a portfolio that might be con uh, important to consider in these days would be holding more cash than is usually the case, allocating it in currencies where you don't believe there will be longer term unexpected inflation and something like gold, which helps on tails and may even help on both tails, uh, a largely deflationary environment that leads to such an extreme safe haven pursuit or an inflationary environment that would as well lead to, to gold prices going up. What's interesting about this is you used, you mentioned illiquid assets, illiquid assets. Um, people talk about the, the, the liquidity premium as if it's a free lunch. Well, it's not a free lunch. It's, it's the compensation you get for giving up the opportunity, giving up the option of investing in other mispricings that occur, other opportunities at any point in time. And that's kind of the opposite of what owning cash and putting it in different currencies around the world is. So, Illiquid assets, in some sense, are not the type of thing that you want for an unstable world, for a, a world of, of high volatility and tail risks. But people were seduced into illiquid assets because they don't have that up and down on a day-to-day -day basis. Or as you said, they're not really correlated. Well, they are really correlated. And if you think about, you know, a, a bat flying through a cave, um, you watch it go in one end of the cave and it comes cruising out the other end of the cave and you say, everything's just fine. Uh, if you had the ability to look inside the cave, this bat's flying around and slamming into stalagmites and all kinds of stuff, beating itself up and finally comes out the other end and everything looks fine. But in the, in the interim, just because you didn't see it, doesn't mean it wasn't there. And just because you don't see quarter to quarter or month to month volatility in, in illiquid assets doesn't mean they're not risky. They are risky. And when equities go down like they go down, when liquid equities go down like they're going down now, guess what? Illiquid equities go down, private equity goes down at the same time. You might compute a low correlation, but that's really not reality. The reality is that these assets are claims on the underlying economic engine. And if thoughts about the economic engine improve, these assets will often have higher returns. If thoughts about the economic engine deteriorate, they'll often have lower returns, expected returns and returns together, together. But that's more of a longer term concept. In a short term investment environment, people get seduced by I can't, if I can't see it, it doesn't happen. Well, it does when it does. And, and I think that's, that's an interesting aspect about portfolios as we go forward. So many have invested in illiquid assets. There's been such a pull of, of, uh, of asset allocation of, of assets under management toward these illiquid assets. Um, and reality, it m perhaps should have been going the opposite direction. So you mentioned the the bats in the cave and you, and you have no idea what's going on. It feels like there's some sort of a, a, a matrix that we're living in. There's these things happening, but we don't understand what, what's actually really going on. But we're still allocating money to, to the area, right? We're still sort of putting money into that that pool and it's coming out the other side and we're hoping that we're getting it back. You know, if, if you know, when we get you know, back to where we started this conversation around sort of the money printing that's been going on, you know, what, what is reality actually we're living in? You know, we've got 25 trillion of debt in the US balance sheet. What is money? You know, money seems to be all sorts of, uh, you know, figurative, uh, 
you know, uh, instruments that are out there. Like, I, I don't know. I, I get I get very confused by it because we are sort of taught a particular way of living. Um, but it feels like we are living in a, in a matrix where you can have, you know, $3 trillion stimulus here, $25 trillion on a balance sheet here. You know, how, how, do you, how do you navigate this sort of environment? I guess there are two ways to... to, to there, there's one decision that ultimately needs to be made, and that's if you think about the matrix environment, uh, do you take the red pill of accepting the unpleasant truth, or do you take the blue pill of blissful ignorance? And uh, we have been taking the blue, not we, but in general, in, in our institutional industry, there's been a lot of consumption of the blue pill, uh, the blissful ignorance of, of low volatility, meaning low risk, and, and not of the red pill, uh, which is the unpleasant truth of things. And as, as I think about this environment, the concept of money is changing. And that's an unpleasant truth for investors. It's an unpleasant truth for central banks as well. Uh, and I alluded to this a little bit before uh, in, in kind of this uh, monetarist theory, which, uh, which many people support, central banks uh, support, in terms of the influence of monetary policy on the economy. And, and we're learning, as I mentioned, that, that the central banks don't have as much control as they thought they had. They can control liquidity in the system. They can flood the system with reserves, and they can manage that uh, liquidity. But they've reached a point now where the supply of money is so great that the demand curve is flat, and they can't use money supply as a interest rate mover. Um, and they have to manage interest rates directly. So now money's become this kind of different concept. Money's something that that banks create through a credit facility and private uh, investors uh, through uh, uh, private credit. Uh, create money ultimately in the system. And, and that's different. This, this, it's disintermediated the traditional financial intermediary, intermediary role and moved the control of money away from, from central banks to some degree. And I believe that's where we are now. I think it'll, uh, it's a regime shift. Uh, I think we're leaving the the old regime of uh, a monetary or inflation-based regime, inflation-targeting-based regime, and we're shifting to another regime. And we hear about um, uh, MMT, modern, uh, monetary theory, and, and that's important, uh, uh, but it's beginning to reveal the way people think about money right now is that governments can spend and all that we need to do is central banks just write a, a big check uh, and write it to the treasury and everybody's fine, everybody's happy. And that works as long as interest rates are low, they're messing around. It's not really the type of money that people are working with every day. Um, and I think that's a different mechanism. And that different mechanism means that uh, the models that people have to think about in terms of money are changing. Maybe that'll make uh, more room for digital currencies. Uh, maybe it'll simply just uh, get hard paper currencies um, less in circulation. If you think about it today, I guess most people, if they're listening to, to this, think of the last time they used money or think of how they used actual bills and coins compared to what they did before the virus hit and before these uh, lockdowns were put in place. It's been a very significant shift. And it's been a significant shift in the way that the market's kind of gone anyway. And it's toward, it's away from that kind of hard stuff that you carry around to more digital stuff um, that is a little bit further out of control <laughs> of central banks. And, and I think that's an important aspect of, of decisions. And that's Maybe one of the reasons when I think about you know an asset allocation today is maybe people need to be a little bit more open-minded uh, that there might be other things out there like cash and gold that um, that uh, behave differently uh, in this environment, maybe have better characteristics in this environment than in the old world that we're all used to. So let's leave it on a, on a final question as we think about this. Um, you know, a situation that we're in. And if the last question seemed like I was confused, it was because I, I, I just don't know. You know, it feels like we're, we're all taking the blue pill. 
you know, but what are the what are the triggers or, or what are some of the factors that you are keeping an eye on to 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 sort of have a feeling that that there is a regime shift again that that the that fundamentals come back that you know the what central banks have done previously is is, is looking like it will fail you know is there, is there any road signs that that you're looking at yeah, I think the important thing is to realize that we have seen this before, and maybe not in terms of degree, but we've seen it before. Um, and, uh, you know, a gold standard helps prevent it, but often we find that gold standards are abandoned, as uh, Nixon did here in the United States. And and when we, or when Bretton Woods broke at the same, you know, those, those types of things are uh, are things that uh, uh, kind of release central banks to do things that they uh, that they haven't done in the past. But we've seen low interest rates like this persist for long periods of time, ultimately when debt levels get high. When debt levels get too high, one of the ways that um, governments or even uh, for the delevering of this society as a whole um, Creating inflation is one thing, but that's harder and harder to do for central banks. Another thing that can be done if they're in the mode of controlling rates rather than uh, directly, rather than uh, controlling them through money supply, they can maintain low real risk-free rates of interest and low real rates of interest that help work off this debt. And when we have seen this in the past, it, it persists for for quite some period of time. So I would say, you know, we, we can learn from the past here. I would say this is definitely a case where there's loose rhyming, uh, but not repeating. And we should from that anticipate the low real rates for an extended period of time. And we'll see what happens with inflation. I suspect we'll see inflation coming back as well. Um, but this is an environment where we're likely to be in uh, for a, a good period of time. And as we're in this environment, we'll shift more and more uh, to seeing inflation managed by fiscal policy where uh, taxes can go up and, or spending can go up. And if taxes go up, that'll put downward pressure on the economy and pull inflation down or government spending can go up. That would push aggregate demand up and, and maybe boost inflation. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying I believe in all of this, but this is the concept, I think, the direction that we'll see policy move over time. Uh, and I think those are all the things that need to be taken into account for investors today and not to lose sight of that as they're trying to navigate the path, the short-term uh, waves. I like to describe it sometimes as asset allocation or uh, policy allocation, strategic asset allocation is distinguishing between the tides, the waves, and the ripples when you look at the ocean. What you want to do is ride the tide, navigate the waves, and ignore the ripples. And unfortunately, we, we're not really there right now. And I think that riding the tide means riding something that's a little different from what we've read, ridden in the past. And two, I think the waves are relative to the size of the tide. The waves are much bigger. And that means you got to pay attention to the waves. The navigating becomes more important. Um, but still avoiding the ripples. There are people out there, algorithms and things like that, head, uh, high frequency traders. They can mess with the ripples. That's fine. Um, but from a broader institutional or ultra high net worth perspective, when we're thinking about strategic asset allocations and things like that, it's a, it's a, uh, Let's go, Huxley. A brave new world. All right. That's a fantastic place to leave it. Thank you very much for your time today, Brian. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.